0: Na'mo dasa bhagavato arahato sammasam buddhasa Na'mo dasa bhagavato arahato sammasam buddhasa Na'mo dasa bhagavato arahato sammasam buddhasa buddhaṁ dhammaṁ saṅkhaṁ Well, first of all, I'd like to say uh, uh, how uh, glad I am to be um, uh, back in the dhamma seat on a moon day. Uh, it's been five or six months since we uh, had a, a gathering, uh, at least a, a little bit like this, at Amravati. We've had uh, Sunday talks and, and other uh, events, but uh, having a, um, uh, a meditation and uh, a uh, Dhamma talk for the whole resident community on a moon day, this hasn't happened for for quite a long time. So I feel very glad to be back, uh, literally in the in the Dhamma seat. Uh, also, uh, this is the first of our um, moon day Dhamma talks uh, that we're holding uh, in a sort of distributed way, so that uh, about half the community are here in the temple. Uh, Socially distance, uh, and then the other half of the community, um, are in different places around the monastery. So I say I, I'm here in the Dhamma seat, but I'm also, uh, I have a, what they call, I think, a distributed identity. So that, uh, I'm also in the Sala, I'm in the retreat center shrine room, and I think in the Bodhinyana hall as well. <laughs> so I think that's, uh, a distributed identity. Also, when this gets po- recorded and posted on the website, then I'll be on the website and in people's homes and in their phones, in their pockets, and um, various places. But uh, uh, essentially, uh, uh, sitting here in the in the dumber seat here on this new moon day of October. Um, very glad to be back in the rhythm of things in this way. We've, we've sustained the uh, recitation for the Patimoka, the, the monastic rule recitation on the new and full moon days. We've kept those going in a limited, uh, appropriately abbreviated ways, but uh, I'm very happy to be gathering in this fashion. Uh, once again, and uh, following the cycles uh, of the moon, as, in, in a way to gather together and to practice meditation as a as a community, and to reflect upon the uh, Dhamma teachings also as a, uh, a community. And I feel this is uh, something that has been been lacking. A lot of people in in the sangha here have felt uh, an absence uh, on account of this, and uh, around the country, around the world, people also feeling a, a sense of. Of, uh, of things being out of joint or a sense of lack because of not having these kind of uh, moon day uh, gatherings or these regular ways of of uh, coming together as a community and particularly people not being able to visit the monastery or come and stay here as guests and participate in these uh, uh, in these events uh, either just coming for the evening on the moon days or coming as a guest and staying here this has been a, a lack uh, that has been widely felt. So I feel very very happy, very uh, glad to be reviving this, and hopefully we'll be able to carry on in this mode uh, for quite some time. I feel it's it's important to uh, follow the moon and to to keep up these observance days uh, in the, in the harmony with the, the moon's cycles, and to be uh, referring to these aspects of the the natural order. Uh, I remember uh, when I, many years ago, when I lived uh, as a student in London, you, you'd you'd forget that the moon and the stars existed. You sort of occasionally relate to them as a sort of a strange streetlight. <laughs> oh, what's that up there? Oh my goodness, it's the moon, and you forget that it even existed, and that uh, we can get so focused on the 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 busyness of our lives and and in the uh, the kind of constructed uh, rhythms of our of the seven day week, or of our, our preoccupations in the monastery or in our family life, that uh, we we forget the the cycles of nature around us. Similarly, uh, autumn is definitely uh, upon us now. the The leaves are all changing. There's this autumnal weather we're experiencing here in the, in the UK. Uh, uh, the leaves are turning colours. You can see on the the shrine. Maybe I don't know if the camera catches the the flower arrangements or the leaf arrangements on the shrine. But the autumnal colours of gold and red and uh, and brown as the the leaves are, are changing and falling. Uh, that uh, this is say indicating that uh, the turning of the year and the the uh, the season of endings. Autumn is a, a time of dying. It's the, the the wrapping up of the the fertility of the year. The uh, the acorns, the the chestnuts, have have formed and are falling into the ground, being literally being squirrelled away by the squirrels and uh, stored for the winter. The the life is going underground. The leaves are dropping off the trees, and uh, the 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 living year of the uh, of the plant world and the. Uh, the animal life is uh, wrapping up and preparing for for winter. So I feel similarly. It's it, it's a very uh, useful, significant, uh, important for us to be bringing attention to this. October isn't just another name on the calendar. It's it's a season. October, November, the the autumn. It's a season. The world is changing around us, and it uh, each season brings its own teachings. Oh, and uh, say, speaking of the the leaves dropping off the trees, and and the the autumn being the time of dying, it's uh, very helpful to to reflect upon that. You know, when we say say the the prevalence of the uh, COVID nineteen uh, virus, the the pandemic, the sweeping around the world, and is affecting all of our lives. So deeply, and that so many people have died. You know, forty-three thousand, more than forty-three thousand people have passed away from the, the virus in this country, and uh, uh, many hundreds of thousands, uh, uh, in the millions, uh, around the world now. That uh, it's a, a, a vast and impactful presence on the lives of, of all of us, and so that uh, we can reflect upon those changes, and and that people's lives coming to an end that that sense of of wrapping up life drawing to a, an end um, and we can we can think of that oh it's uh, it's a terrible disease i wish this wasn't a terrible disease i wish this wasn't happening it's uh, it should have been handled much better it shouldn't be this way but uh, it's also helpful to consider that we're part of a living system and just as the uh, the year turns the, the uh, the nuts and, and acorns ripen and, and uh, fall from the trees, fall into the ground. The, the leaves turn gold and red and brown and, uh, and fall off. Our lives are exactly the same. That uh, Whether the, we get the, the COVID-19 disease or we don't, or, uh, our lives are going to come to an end. And that this is part of uh, the natural order. When we, we see the leaves turning colour, we might think, oh, it's quite beautiful. We, it's so beautiful, we put them on the shrine, arrange them to, <laughs> to glorify, beautify the shrine. And uh, even when we see the leaves falling off the trees, I, I don't think anyone feels a sense of, of grief or, or loss, so uh, that we don't, at least I don't find myself uh, feeling uh, weepy uh, at, the, at the falling of the leaves in the autumn. It's not something that I, you feel a, a sense of loss about or a, a sense of sadness. We see, well, this is the autumn, this is what happens. The leaves fall from the trees. It's it's ordinary, it's normal. But uh, when it's our lives coming to an end, when it's uh, our loved ones, uh, someone close to us, or even our own life, we, we uh, uh, are, say, stricken with an illness or through old age or uh, particularly through the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, then it's very, very different. We don't feel like this is a leaf on a tree. It's not. Uh, it's not the same. We feel it's very different. We 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 take it to heart, and uh, we relate to those endings very, very differently because of our birth in the human condition. We have a much stronger uh, uh, sense of bonding and emotional attachment to other people, to to our fellow human uh, members of the human family. We we feel much stronger. But the, the Dhamma teachings are pointing, in a way, to the, the bigger picture, over and over again. So you'll see that nothing is going wrong, nothing is out of order. Uh, jara jarang I am of the nature to age, I've not gone beyond ageing. Bayadi bayading I, have, I am of the nature to sicken, I've not gone beyond sickness. Marna marna I am of the nature to die, I've not gone beyond dying. So the Buddha is encouraging us that in those subjects for frequent recollection to see, is it any different, the, a leaf uh, turning uh, to a, a, a dried and uh, dead object falling from the tree, descending to the ground? Is that so different from our lives, our human bodies? Uh, is that so different? I feel it's very helpful to reflect uh, on this way but physical death can seem something remote or or something uh, far away from us. We think of it as a a statistic uh, uh, that we hear about or or we think of someone else in a hospital somewhere or someone else in a a family far away that's, uh, that's dying or has just died and and you know, the number of people who have died at Amravati over the years is, is a very small number. A few people have died here. A few deaths have occurred uh, within the monastery uh, over the decades, the 36 years Amravati has been, been uh, uh, in existence. There have been a few people who, who have died here, uh, uh, maybe uh, four or five, uh, half a dozen altogether, one way and another. Uh, it, it's not a common thing. And so we, so living here at the monastery, being part of the monastic community, physical death, death of anyone close to us living nearby, is is a rare thing, or it can seem distant or remote. But uh, the other kinds of death, um, the uh, uh, can be far more impactful and far more, um, say, meaningful. So that the uh, what would I like to think of as ego death. It's very common (laughs) that uh, we, uh, when living in community uh, and uh, watching our minds, then uh, ego death is something uh, uh, far more uh, tangible, far more frequent, and uh, that most of us feel on a a daily basis. And when I talk about ego death, what I mean is when we we say something and uh, somebody criticizes us and say, oh, that's really stupid. How can you think that? or we we pick up some kind of a project and we uh we're trying to sew a robe and and uh we uh can't sew a straight line or, or we are um or say like uh i was talking the other day about how i uh many years ago when i was living up at harnham i uh, i hand sewed a a, a G1, an upper robe uh i was in the middle in the midst of of writing the uh, book about the walk i made through england um and so my sort of occupational therapy for getting away from the world of, of words and <laughs> putting the book together, I was uh, sewing this this robe, this Jiwon. So it took me three or four months, four or five months to hand sew this whole G1. And uh, And you know, when I got to the end of it, I found that it was about four or five inches too short. So that that was an ego death. <laughs> how could you be so stupid? You spent four or five months sewing this thing by hand. How yeah? How many hours? Yeah, dozens and dozens of hours you spent sewing this thing, and you didn't bother to check your measurements. So uh, so I found a short a shorter a shorter monk to give it away to. But uh, that was a, uh, <laughs> a profound embarrassment so uh how many ego deaths happen during the course of a day where you you uh, go along uh, to the servery at the meal time and think i'm not going to eat too much today i'm not going to take too much food absolutely determined and then you get to the end of the line at uh, the um of the servery and you, your bowl is weighing about 3 or 4 kilos and you go, wow what happened i was i was going to be really modest today <laughs> oh. this is the kind of thing i mean by by ego death that uh this happens uh, over and over again. So that the the way we can relate to a, a leaf turning on a tree, or even a, a statistic in a in a newspaper, is one thing. But when it's the, the, these kind of uh, psychological deaths, they are much much closer to home. They they we feel them very strongly. And so uh, I think that it's uh, in terms of the teachings, they are they uh, they are profoundly. Applicable. They are absolutely applicable and helpful with these other kinds of more immediate psychological uh, deaths and losses that uh, we that we meet that all of us experience on a on a daily basis, where you uh, you know, you are uh, you're rejected by someone that you someone that you want to draw close to. You want you to be your friend, and they say something, and they sort of push you away, and you, you and uh, you, they. Uh, uh, they don't realize that they've hurt your feelings and you carry that around or you crack a joke and and it turns out to be not uh, the slightest bit funny <laughs> you, know, you carry around the embarrassment of having said that stupid thing that uh, you're trying to be amusing but it it, uh, it fell completely flat um, or, or the, any one of the uh, 10,000 things I think all of us resident here at Amravati the uh, the, uh, the monks community nuns community the lay community uh, and the, all of us uh, people listening in watching in uh, uh, to this this talk around the world we can insert uh, our own particular brand or our own say customary ways of of, uh, of that of experiencing that kind of ego death as kinds of failure or loss or, or embarrassment um, and I uh, I feel that that's uh, <coughs> one of the richest areas of the of the practice is contemplating these kind of deaths, contemplating that the dukkha that uh, is there is tangible, is vivid. This sort of oh, that uh, uh, I wish it wasn't this way, or how could this happen? Or, oh no, I did it again. This is so awful. This is so embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> or or the other aspect of it how could they do that to me it's not fair <laughs> you know, they shouldn't they shouldn't be that way uh, I've been betrayed uh, they should they uh, they've upset me it's you know the finger pointing at the other the being the cause of of suffering and blaming others blaming the system or blaming the government um, blaming those outside however it might be that uh, the teaching uh, the and the the buddha's uh, say encouragement and, and what really works so helpfully in community life and, and using the practice effectively is to really uh, look at that feeling that that <laughs> <laughs> the, the dukkha impact that uh, uh, the kind of clenching of the heart that uh, dukkha feeling really that's I would say, is the essential object of meditation. As the Buddha said quite often, I teach one thing, dukkha and the ending of dukkha. So his encouragement as our teacher, as our great mentor, as the spiritual guide, is uh, with dukkha, bring your attention to that. One of the teachings I like to to quote quite often is where the Buddha says, uh, suffering, dukkha, Uh, can ripen in two ways there's two different ways that dukkha ripens Um, so the the first way that it ripens is in more dukkha so how do we how do we react when we uh, say when we have that kind of suffering feeling when we've we feel embarrassed or we feel critical we're angry with someone or angry with ourselves or we're anxious and what do we usually do with that dukkha feeling when we're you know, when we're frustrated or upset or irritated? What, what do we do with that? Well, reflecting on that, I don't know about uh, uh, everybody here or everyone listening into this, but there's two usual responses: is one is wallowing in it, or oh, you know, poor me, or this isn't fair, or how could I have done that, or or oh, how can I make that better, or how could they treat me that way, or. <laughs> You wallow in the, the dukkha and make more of it, you uh, intensify it, or you try to blot it out, you distract yourself from it, you either sort of just shut, shut yourself down and try to not feel it, or you distract yourself, you put your mind under something else and just push it away and, and suppress it. So, uh, so the first way that we we uh, deal with dukkha, according to this teaching of the Buddha, is that uh, suffering ripens in two ways. The first way is further dukkha. So whether we wallow in it and, and uh, say identify with it, the uh, I'm an imperfect person, I'm so useless, uh, I'm no good, or, or my suffering is your fault, and that wallowing that just creates more dukkha. Or suppressing it, trying to switch off, trying to go you know, going numb in the presence of dukkha. That also creates more dukkha that keeps the wheel of becoming, the wheel of birth and death, turning. That uh, 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 there's a, 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 uh, an occasion, uh, uh, an experience of re- being reborn into those same problems, those same attitudes, those, those same states. The, the bhavachaka, the wheel of becoming, keeps turning. But uh, the other way of handling Dukkha, uh, the Buddha says it ripens in two ways. One is in further Dukkha, the other, uh, the other way it ripens is in search. In, in that, uh, And when he defines search, he, he spells it out as saying, there must be some alternative to this, there must be some way out of this Dukkha, that this can't be the whole story. There has to be a, a, some other possibility, this can't be all and everything. And so, essentially, that's the, the the basis of faith. There's that intuition that that uh, there has to be a different way of, of relating to this. The, the the world is bigger than this. That this can't be uh, the whole story. So that is is really the the basis of of faith and the the sense of uh, there there has to be an alternative. There has to be a way that this can be transcended. And so that it's by. We're changing the way that we relate to that ego death experience. There's there's, uh, feelings of frustration or fear or or, uh, alienation, regret, embarrassment and and so on. Uh, Blaming, complaining. Uh, It's how we relate to that. Everything hinges on that, how the mind relates to Dukkha. So essentially this is, I, I call this the... The first exit point from the the wheel of birth and death uh, in in terms of dependent origination those are, and i'm presuming most people who are gathered here and listening to this and watching this uh, are f- somewhat familiar with the dependent origination teaching so this is a sort of link number 12 this is at the the end of the cycle at the Parideva Upayasa, sorrow lamentation pain grief and despair that's the 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 12th link in the chain so if if dukkha is is attached to is wallowed in or is suppressed then it just leads link number 12 leads back onto link number one ignorance (laughs) and then that the whole the whole wheel keeps turning the the wheel of birth and death keeps turning but if we change the the attitude change the way that that we relate to that dukkha experience the ego death experience then that becomes the exit point that becomes a way that the the heart breaks free of that that cycle of addiction that that uh, wheel of becoming so that the exit that first exit point is really related to the, the first noble truth because uh, that's where the, the the buddha's liberating teaching begins it brings attention to idang dukkang this is dukkha so in that that moment when we've we've said something stupid and and people we've cracked a joke and nobody's laughed, <laughs> we feel embarrassed or we've lost our we're leading the chanting or we've lost our place in the chanting and everyone goes quiet because you just began the wrong verse or you you repeated the same verse over again. only <laughs> oh, which that happens when you're in the senior role more often than when you're when you're in a junior role, but uh, or you've You've me- messed up your robe sewing, or, or uh, you've tried to cook something in the kitchen. You're on the on the cooking team, and uh, something the the you, your the recipe you were trying out has turned into a complete disaster. Wh- whatever it might be, that rather than focusing on the the robe that's been messed up or the the thing that you said, then uh, or trying to make things right with the person that you upset or or uh, uh, get even with the person who's just criticised you. You turn the attention deliberately round 180 degrees, so you, you, you're no longer looking at the thing, which is the the uh, the event or the action, the the perception that has has been the cause of, of difficulty, and you turn it back 180 degrees to, to look at your own jitta, and in that looking, there's the recognition idang dukkang. This is dukkha. Whether it should have been this way or it shouldn't have been this way, whether it was I was being unmindful or whether that person should or shouldn't have said that, or uh, whether the, the government's done things wrong or that uh, I was given the wrong recipe, idang <laughs> dukang, This is dukkha. This is the way the mind is, is holding it, and so that this is where the 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 wheel of becoming uh, can be let go of. Can uh, it's the exit point from the the cycle is uh, right there that. The mind is recognizing oh this is something that is being done this is the way the mind is relating to this experience of of uh, discomfort or, or uh, the uh, this uh, interaction between myself and another this particular task i was trying to do and i wanted it to go this way and it's gone that way that uh, we are we're recognizing oh this is what the mind is doing with the experience it's uh, Maybe that, that other person was out of order in, in speaking that way, or maybe there's a a, a reasonable uh, uh, cause for the difficulty, the discomfort that you're experiencing. But in this moment, what is the mind doing with that experience? How is it holding on to it? And it's not just with painful or difficult things. You can We can create dukkha out of something beautiful and pleasant and delightful that we're attached to. So say, for example, if you were the one who... Who put the uh, the the flower arrangements, the leaf arrangements together for the shrine? And you think, yes, this is beautiful, absolutely perfect. And someone, and so you're really pleased with it, and it's a delightful, pleasant experience for you, and you feel like, oh, that's so lovely, that's so gorgeous. And then someone comes along and said, "Have, have you finished those? <laughs> are they supposed to look like that? You know, uh, are, are these the old ones? Are, are you going to change this for something better?" Yeah. You know, what do you mean? So something that's that's pleasant and delightful uh, similarly can be a, a cause for suffering. So that uh, if we uh, if we change the way that we relate to to that experience of dukkha, then we are we find that there's a, a, a direct means to transcend it. Very often when when uh, uh, people would come to me either asking for Nowadays it's mostly through emails, <laughs> since we don't have any day visitors here at, uh, at Amravati these days. But when people would come to visit on, on a regular basis, and often people come to make offerings in memory of someone who's passed away, a family member, you know, a parent or the spouse or the child, that they come to make offerings dedicated to the memory of someone who's passed away, and they're feeling a lot of grief, a lot of sadness. It's a, a very um, pained uh, and... Uh, uh, say tearful in, in in say the experience of loss with a, a close family member a loved one a dear one who's passed away and so the kind of advice i would always give would be to to uh, in, in exactly this vein is to uh, to not just uh, get lost in that painful feeling get kind of uh, or to uh, wallow in that feeling of grief or to get completely absorbed in it or to suppress it or try to ignore it but rather to take the painfulness of that that loss and use the pain to help us to wake up and really that's essentially what the buddha is encouraging us to do is to take that the pains of the dukkha feeling and use it as a cause to awaken to to brighten the mind to to, to be a a, a, a spur as a, a cause for the mind to wake up you use that painfulness to and make it work for you so make, putting the dukkha to work <laughs> and uh, and if, if it's handled in a skillful way then it can be really really beneficial the uh, one of the the, the sayings that uh, lumpochha um uh, used to uh, used to offer uh, I was reminded of a, a little while ago by a, 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 a former monk who was with him back in the late 60s, early 70s. He said, you know, Lumpur Chow would often say, uh, good meditation is good, bad meditation is good. <laughs> so we tend to think if the meditation is good, you know, quote unquote, when the, the mind is clear and focused and bright and and there's a wholesome states arising, you think, oh good, my, my practice is really good, it's really, uh, I'm really pleased with how my practice is going. But if we sit down to, to meditate, like, like this evening, I yes, had a, a, a period of meditation before the Dhamma talk, and uh, you are, your mind is all over the place, you're falling asleep, you have all kinds of uh, aversions and fantasies, passionate fantasies and regrets and, and uh, confusion, Oh what a total mess this is awful my mind is all over the place What a you know really bad meditation so why would lumpo Cha say you know maidi godi when the practice when the meditation is 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 bad that's good too because even when things are are bad we can learn from that we can recognize that the the mind is not under personal control. We can develop a lot of wisdom even by watching the the mind being full of unskillful uh, objects and drifting around all over the place. If we have a skillful attitude, the unwanted, the unlovable, the the unwholesome can be a source of wisdom, can be a a way that we we build Bharamita. It can be a source of great benefit. Similarly, Lumpur would, uh, would often say, uh, like and dislike are of equal value. Chōp, my chōp, tatagan. Forgive my bad pronunciation. But <laughs> but, but liking and disliking are of equal value. In, in a worldly way, we think, liking, uh, that we, we get what we like, that's good. Uh, we things go the way that we want, we're happy, and we call that good. Things go the way that we don't want, and we think, "Oh, that's bad. Uh, that's uh, that's unpleasant. That that uh, shouldn't be that way." But uh, why would he say uh, liking and disliking are of equal value? Because it, it's it's changing the the worldly way we th- that we relate uh, out of habit to happiness and, and unhappiness, to to pleasure and suffering. That if we have a skillful attitude, then even getting what we dislike experiencing things that we dislike like physical pain or or loss or in you know, grief at someone close to us passing away or failure being criticized um, getting things wrong uh, you know, launching some some project that uh, uh, falls apart or that uh, is uh, is unsuccessful doesn't arrive at the desired goal then are we uh, we're not getting what we want? We're not getting what we like. <laughs> it's disliked. But like and dislike are of equal value insofar as if they are handled with, with wisdom, they can uh, be a, a source of liberation. They can be a source of, of a great, great benefit. It's entirely around the attitude that we, we bring to success and failure, like and dislike. It's, it's really up to us. So in this respect, I feel that also the, uh, the, the teaching on the, the two arrows is, is really important. And these are teachings we've, we've heard over and over again. They're very simple and direct teachings, but it's one of those things, even though it's simple and we've heard it before, <laughs> why do we keep forgetting? Why do we get, get lost in the, 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 the dozens of different ways the mind creates dukkha during the course of a day? so, the the teaching of the two arrows, the uh, the Buddha said, uh, it's particularly with respect to physical pain. But the first arrow, this is an image of a a soldier being shot on a battlefield with an arrow. The first arrow of pain cannot be avoided. that we have a body, you have a mind, we're going to experience physical pain. It's uh, it's uh, unnegotiable. It has to be that way. Uh, you have a body you have a mind there's going to be pain so the first arrow can't be can't be dodged the second arrow is what the mind makes out of it it's the complaining negotiating worrying uh, blaming that uh, gathers around that painful feeling or that that cloud of aversion and anxiety and resentment uh, that uh, the tensing of the heart around that painful feeling, and as he points out in that teaching, the second arrow is avoidable; that can be dodged. And uh, if uh, if we see things in this way, we recognize pain is one thing, but the suffering that is created around that is completely different. So we can experience pain; we can experience the unliked, the unlovable. <laughs> we can experience a bad meditation, a bad bad mind states. Quote unquote and be completely at peace with that we can experience physical pain and not make a problem out of it we can experience failure and loss and sadness it's still sad it's still painful there's still uh, a bitterness there but the mind is not making it into a problem it's not complaining about it it's not getting lost in it it's not say uh, creating the idea that it should or could be any other way than exactly as it is in this moment so there's a there's a great peacefulness uh, in that, a great uh, ease that that comes, and that uh, even though these are very simple teachings, and most of us have heard these many many times before, uh, isn't it amazing how we keep forgetting, how we get lost in in particular moods and uh, feeling resentment about certain uh, uh, people that we live with or. or uh, aches and pains of the body, ailments, illnesses that we have in the body, or the the, the structure of community life, or the the way the government has made its choices, and uh, and uh, so on and so forth. That uh, isn't it amazing how many times during the day the mind gets uh, gets right in the way of that second arrow, and then gets lost in it. It shouldn't be this way, or this isn't fair, or or why me, or and I, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And there is dukkha. There is uh, the, the heart is lost in that. So I feel that it's uh, if we bring uh, this right front center in our attention and apply this, then the right uh, in that in that bringing of attention to that, then the second arrow is avoided, and then the difficulties of our life. Uh, the things that we we dislike the things that are challenging the illnesses the the conflicts the the frustrations these become a, a direct source of wisdom a source of liberation and that they're not something to be resented or, or neglected or or uh or say pushed away uh, or criticized at all So so I, I this i would say is the first exit point of the of the the wheel of birth and death is is directly related to that first noble truth the, the second exit point that maybe to to reflect on this evening is uh, i would say a little bit uh, earlier on the wheel so between links number 7 and 8 this is the link in uh, in the dependent origination cycle of feeling to craving vedana pachaya tanha feeling, conditions, craving. And for uh, for the um, forest tradition teachers, the Ajahn's of the forest tradition, and this is a very, very frequent uh, subject of Dhamma teachings and pointing out that this is the weakest link. This second exit point is really the weakest link in the whole chain. How feeling, conditions, craving. And because this is, in a way, how to... <laughs> Uh, to, how to stop the, the, that uh, that feeling ripening in dukkha in the first place? So we, when when we are are looking at our lives and and how dukkha gets caused, then so much of it revolves around uh, uh, again how we relate to feeling, to that feeling of like, feeling of dislike. And if we are uh, so, in a way, this is a refinement of the teaching of of the, the two arrows, is uh, so sort of pointing at this this area, and so that when the mind is caught in desire, as uh, all of us uh, are, are aware, you know, if you've been watching your mind even for a little while, then you you recognize that when you desire something, and that can be a, a, a sense of uh, of. Hungering for a sense object, like uh, I want something to eat, or I want a, a cup of tea, or a cup of coffee, or I, I want to go to this particular place, I want to have this, you know, th- whether it's a sense desire, or it's or a more subtle uh, uh, form of desire, like the desire to become bhavatanna, the desire to become concentrated, the desire to, to become wise, the desire to become enlightened. The desire to 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 be uh, approved of, or to to the desire to feel feel secure, these more subtle kinds of the of uh, of uh, the desire to become, or its opposite, this partner, uh, vibhavatana, the desire to get rid of. I want to get rid of my chattering thoughts. I want to get rid of my defilements. I want to get rid of my lust and greed and fear and uh, and uh, my complaining mind. I want to to get rid of my my problems. Uh, And so that whatever kind of desire it might be, when the the attention is caught by that, the the mind shrinks, the the world shrinks to that particular thing. So that uh, it's a a fairly familiar process for anyone who's done any amount of watching the mind, how when you focus on a particular thing that you want, if only I had X or Y or Z, then I would be happy. If only I I could... um, to get to to be uh, living in this particular place where if only i uh, could get away from this painful if i didn't have this painful feeling in my knee or if only i i could get my chattering thoughts to stop if only i didn't have to live with this particular monk or if only i <laughs> if only my debts were paid off you know, then i would be happy so this is the way desire works, that the world shrinks, the attention focuses on a particular object, something that we see or hear or smell or taste or touch, a particular emotion, and the world shrinks to that. And the more uh, say, focused the mind is uh, and, it, uh, it, and locked into that particular desire, that particular kind of tanha, then... The the world has shrunk to that that one thing. If only I if I could just get one more of these. Just uh, if I could just get rid of this, then I would be happy. If only I didn't have to deal with this difficult person. If only I, if only this was over. When, if only the bell would ring, everything will be fine. <laughs> and uh, uh, this is how desire works. It shrinks the world. It tells you you're incomplete, that there's something missing, and that if you could just get. That missing piece, if you could just get that thing that would fill the gap, uh, then you would be happy. So this is the great lie, It's uh, the gohok yai in the Thai language. This is the great lie that desire tells. And, and it can be equally, as, a, as I was saying, it can be an aversion to. We call desire in English usually means something that we want to get. Something that is attractive, that we want to get. But the desire can also be to get rid of, to get away from some person that we don't like, or to uh, to get to a place where the weather is is uh, is different, whether it's uh, it's uh, warmer, or, or that uh, we uh, want to to uh, get rid of our defilements. We want to get uh, get rid of our uh, selfish, angry tendencies, and so on. So that. The desire doesn't have to be for a, a pl- a, an attractive or a pleasant object to be to get rid of too, but it's telling us that we've we're lacking something that we want to have, or, or we're burdened with something that if I could just get rid of this problem, if I could just get away from this difficult person, if I could just get my debt paid off, then I would be happy. And so this is the great lie because it's telling us that we are this individual person who is burdened with this thing, and if this burden wasn't there, we'd be happy. Or we've got this this thing that we lack, and if we could just get that thing, if we could just uh, uh, get the uh, get the book published or get the debt uh, get the debt paid off, or or this is that that person approved of me or, or liked me, if I could just get my own monastery and run it how I know it, the monastery should be run, <laughs> then. Yeah then I would be happy. So this is the great lie, I would suggest, that uh, we are intrinsically lacking something that we need to get that will complete us, or we, we're burdened, we're pressured by something that if we could just get rid of it, then we would be happy. So to to reflect on that that, uh, that link between feeling and craving is bringing the attention to the feeling, of the, the feeling of wanting. The feeling of liking that this is this is delicious. This is this is attractive. This is pleasant, and to know it's that it, it, this is a delicious feeling, and that doesn't have to lead to. Therefore, I've got to I've got to have more. I've got to get it. I've got to own it. Or this is painful. This is difficult. It doesn't have to lead to. I've got to get rid of. I can't stand it. So it's learning to be open-hearted to the realm of feeling, and when feeling is present. Uh, whether it's a, a painful feeling, uh, like uh, as in the, particularly talking about in the, the teaching on the two arrows, or it's a pleasant feeling, that if that can be known clearly and uh, in, a, in an open, unbiased way, then pleasant feeling is, is pleasant, it's delightful, something is beautiful, it's, attra- it's, it's appealing, it's delicious. And we recognize the mind doesn't have to add anything to that. Something can be, can be painful, can be unwanted. The, the bitterness of having, uh, say, uh, trying to do some some task and it's failed. There's a bitterness there. Or like I was saying earlier, you, you try to crack a joke and nobody laughs, and it's really, <laughs> it really falls flat. There's a, a bitterness there. We don't have to add anything to that. Because, oh, this is a bitter feeling. This is a painful feeling. That's all. This is a sweet feeling. This is a delicious, a delicious taste. That's all. When we bring attention to the world of feeling and learn how to, uh, say, not react blindly to it, then this is another of the exit points from the the cycle. And it's related to the the second noble truth that the the Buddha points to this in his exposition on the the four noble truths, that if that... uh, if desire is let go of, essentially that means if we just know pleasant feeling is pleasant feeling and don't add anything to it, or painful feeling is painful feeling, don't add anything to it, then there, there is an ease, there's a spaciousness in the heart. Pahata banti, it's is let go of. That's a, what, the way to work with the experience of craving. Uh, so that... Uh, what we're learning to do is to not believe the lie, not believe the advertising, the, the the promise. You know, if you get an iPhone 12, you will really be happy. I don't know if they exist yet, but <laughs> I've seen advertisements for them. But, uh, but if you get that, then I will be happy. Well, maybe there's a 13 coming. Oh, what about that? The to recognize. Well, this is a lie. Not. I'm not criticizing the. Uh, Apple company, but just this is how the the promises of the world. Uh, this is how they work. This is the 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 lie of the desire mind. And if there's an attention brought to the realm of feeling, then and this recognize, oh, this is this is the del- delicious taste. Yes, this is the sweetness of being approved and being loved, being being praised. Yes, it's sweet this is the bitterness of being criticized or rejected or, or alienated yeah it's it's bitter it's like this then there's a tremendous spaciousness in the heart and we're not just again not going numb or not dealing uh, if it's painful and and, uh, and uncomfortable we're not just in that sense of knowing it as a feeling and not just using that, that as an excuse to dissociate or go numb or say well i don't care it's just yeah, it's just an empty sankara, just arises and passes away. It's not me, not mine, which is a sort of a, a, a disguised form of vibhava tanha. Uh, but rather that there's a, a mindful and attuned quality. There's a, a bringing attention. Yeah, this is really bitter. This is exactly what I didn't want to happen. Ow! And then to really receive that, to to accept that, to attune the heart to that, but not to add anything to it. Then then right there the the wheel has been let go of the heart is freed from the wheel of birth and death is no longer tied to that at the the very basis of this the very the very core of this i i feel it's also good to reflect that the that sense of yeah and it can be really Powerful and certainly my mind is, uh, over the years uh, has regularly been <laughs> compelled by feelings of desire like, oh, I just want that, I just want to do that, I just want to see that, I just want to feel that and that caught into that, it's really compelling, really convincing but the mind that recognizes, how could anything be lacking, really? You know, if the, the Dhamma is here and now, uh, uh, if the Dhamma is the fundamental reality of things how can anything really be lacking now if uh, there can be the feeling i've got to get rid of this i can't stand this i can't bear it Uh, i I can't uh, i can't deal with this a moment longer i can't bear it this is unbearable Uh, it's like what what can really burden the dhamma what can really weigh uh, down the 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 dhamma or be be uh, a a burden on on the the dhamma of the way things are how could that be if we reflect on the nature of, of dhamma, how could it be lacking anything? How can it be pressured by anything? It, it, th- those words don't apply. Even saying even saying those words is kind of ridiculous. It just seems ca- crazy. So that, that feeling of me being burdened or me lacking something, they have to be untrue. They can only be a, a relative truth or a partial truth. Uh, and so I feel it's important to reflect that the 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 mind is Dhamma, the mind is not a person. we We think of the mind or my mind, my thoughts, my feelings, my memories, and it and we relate to to this mind in a very personal way. but if uh, I feel it's it's most helpful, most skillful and most realistic to to take this uh, a different approach and to recognize the fundamental nature of mind, the Jitta is Dhamma. The chitta is tama. It's not a person, even though it's a really strong habit to relate to the to the, to the chitta, the mind as 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 me, as I am this, I I think this, I feel this, I remember this. Uh, I am happy. I am unhappy. I am restless. I am peaceful. Yeah, I'm worried. Yeah, uh, I'm comfortable. All of those. We yeah we we talk in those ways very very easily. But developing the practice and using the, these teachings, that the jitta that is released from the wheel of becoming, the, the nature of that jitta is, is dhamma itself. That, uh, the, the, the very fabric of, of mind, the basis of mind is dhamma. Is, uh, that is its quality. So you know, hearing these words, I, I uh, don't take my word for it, but rather... Uh, I encourage people to explore that. Just taking a little phrase like, "the mind is not a person," the mind is dhamma, and just to explore that, to to reflect on that, to to f- see whether that that's that's genuine, that has a a validity to it. So, and then to to reflect, yeah, how could how could the dhamma be lacking anything in this moment? How could there be a thing? Uh, uh, an event, a sensory event, that somehow makes the dhamma more complete. Or how could anything be missing in 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 the absolute truth of things in this moment? How could anything be extra in, in this moment? You know, the, the dhamma is is full and complete. There's there's nothing lacking, nothing in excess, as as it's said in the uh, the verses on the faith mind. Nothing is lacking, nothing is in excess. The dhamma is is as it is. Oh, when when talking about dhamma, then it can it can seem a bit sort of vague or insubstantial, uh, and the, the words that we use to describe dhamma can seem a bit a bit vague or intangible. So uh, we say the dhamma is akaliko, timeless, or sanditiko, apparent here and now, uh, Ehipasiko, in, encouraging investigation. There's there's not a lot to hang on to there. So, and but in that respect, I feel it's it is important to uh, to consider that the Dhamma is indeed unimaginable. If the Dhamma is outside of time, uh, it's uh, it's outside of space. Space and time don't apply. It's really unimaginable. (laughs) Unimaginable. The mind can't create an image of that which is timeless that which is unborn unoriginated uncreated unformed because our mind thinks in the wo- in images of three dimensional space a thing occupies space we uh, it, or even a thing an abstract thing like time or peace it uh, there's a sense of beginning and ending that the the there's a form a structure a feeling but uh, when we speak about Dhamma as being timeless as being unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed, the 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 imagination literally has has nothing to work with. <laughs> uh, it is unimaginable, but uh, uh, it is the 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 fundamental integrative principle uh, of all things. That that which upholds. It's that quality which is the the very fabric of mind and nature. So when we we try to to grope for an image or grasp an image or kind of hunt for some kind of image or a feeling of well, what is the dhamma what what is it it's, it comes across as so important and it's the it's it's one of the refuges but really what it is the dhamma but, uh, it's, uh it's 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 never going to be possible to find a, a an image or a, a concept or a word that really uh, describes it or in, embodies that you know we have these. Words like timeless, or uh, apparent here and now, or suchness, or uh, immanent, or transcendent—you know—these words sort of hover around the edges of, of that reality, where they can never really describe it. They can never really encompass it. But the uh, what we are, are doing with the practice is essentially: uh, we are learning to to be dhamma. To uh, to embody that, not as a, a me, me embodying the Dhamma or me becoming the Dhamma, <laughs> but rather that recognizing that has been the very fabric of of what is real from the from the beginning, and that it's even though you, the the thinking mind, the imagining mind can't create an image for Dhamma, Dhamma can be realized, it can be known, it can be embodied. Uh, and so that uh, I, I feel this is one of uh, again one of Cha's most profound teachings. He would say, along with hearing dhamma, practicing dhamma, realizing dhamma, the final stage of that process is being dhamma. And not as I, and, and again, it's not as though me who wasn't the dhamma then becomes dhamma, but rather it's that the layers of of self delusion, of self view and conceit, fall away, and then it's recognized uh, uh, ultimately that. The dhamma it was uh, was always the very fabric of of everything that you are. the the uh, That's the very root of of our reality is dhamma. So it's not like me becoming dhamma, uh, but rather the dhamma is recognizing those all those me's, those eyes and me's and minds uh, arising and passing away, and that the, that quality of, of dhamma has been. The the very basis of uh, of uh, of all things from uh, from the uh, the uh, the very beginning. So it's not anything that's being got. <laughs> it's in a way it's rather like a, a a wave recognizing that it's always been part of the sea. That uh, that that was the very fabric of the wave all along. That the, the wave doesn't have to to become the sea. The wave was, the wave was always a part of the sea, but just didn't realize that that was the the very fabric of its nature. So uh, I uh, I feel that uh, if we have this understanding, or we use this kind of uh, approach, uh, that uh, the mind is not a person, the mind is Dhamma. Then it, it puts into a clearer perspective all those personalizing habits, my body, my feelings, my memory, my plans. <laughs> my schedule my my responsibilities it, it uh it changes the way the mind relates to all of those uh, aspects of what we call you know my world my life my opinions my my likes and dislikes and uh it the the mind literally sees with the eye of dharma it sees things in a a non-personal way and the feelings of liking or disliking gaining and losing they are they are seen as waves of, of perception, patterns of perception, arising and passing away, and that they're not, they're never taken as a refuge. The mind doesn't take refuge in getting what getting what you like or association with the liked. It doesn't take refuge in separation from the liked or, or being with the uh, with the painful. It uh, it knows them as they are. It doesn't identify with those feelings of gain or loss, but sees that those only are patterns of perception arising and passing. Nothing can be lost. Nothing can be gained because the the Dhamma, that timeless reality, has always been the very fabric and foundation of everything that is, everything that we are. And when there, the mind awakens uh, to that, when there is a real being Dhamma. Then, uh, then, it's a uh, the uh, it's a a, uh, a realization, uh, and it brings with it a quality of peacefulness, of clarity, of spaciousness, and a profound contentment. What's what's to lose? <laughs> what's to gain? When were you ever made any the less by dying? You know, what what can be lost? You know. Bodies come, bodies go. The breath comes in, the breath goes out. Successes come, failures come. Hunger comes, fullness comes. It's uh, it's just uh, uh, nothing can be lost, nothing can be gained. So nothing to get excited about, that that t- to acquire, nothing to be worried about to lose. There's a, a profound ease, a, a radical contentment that comes with that. Uh, Realization, uh, as the Puchar put it, of, uh, of being Dhamma. So I offer these words for consideration this evening.